0: Welcome to Hearsay Social on the Air, episode 20. Coming to you from our San Francisco World Headquarters, welcome to Hearsay Social on the Air. I'm Victor Gaxiola. I'm Ronnie Kerr. So very special show today. I know we've uh, kind of building it up leading up to the show, right? <laughs> we sure have. Uh, we kind of like really promoting it, and I think part of it is the fact that, you know, we start thinking about us developing an employee spotlight series. You're looking at, you know, interviewing people from all the various regions, all the different departments, if you will, that have been working within our group, and hopefully you've enjoyed that. Um, but, you know, we all talk about the origin story of what started Hearsay Social, what really got it going, and so today we're excited to have Clara join us to really share her thoughts and look back at the past 5 years of our history and then start looking towards the future. So yeah, um,
1: I think we've been promoting it for a good reason. I mean, I I feel pretty privileged that I get to sit with Clara on on many of our, you know, press opportunities, meeting with journalists and others and, and I've, got, I've heard the story a few times, but you know, it's it's a great story and and it's and it's fun to hear directly from from Clara's mouth um, yeah how it all got started and how we've evolved and where we are today
0: and, and it's part of the onboarding process I mean for those people who may not be familiar with hearsay social as they join the company they do spend some time with her or they'll spend some time with Steve they understand the origins of the story and we all start feeling like a part of it so I'm really interested in you know finding a little bit a little bit more and you always learn something new as we've learned if you will through this whole process um, here we are at tail end of 2014. We're looking towards 2015. Um, I always find that this time of year, there's two prevailing kind of um, emotions that I go through. Number one mm. is is kind of a reflection. You know, I like looking back at the year, what did I accomplish, where I was. And that's the, that's the nice thing about the new year is there's like a benchmark. Where was I this year, this time last year? And then the second emotion is one of optimism, is one of excitement about the new year and what's to unfold and what's to come. So looking to explore that, uh, both those emotions with, with Clara. Um, before we get started, I really wanted to, to, to send out a few thank yous, Ronnie. Um, the first one I want to thank is all our listeners. These are all the people who are downloading these episodes, who are sharing their thoughts on our Twitter, HS on air, um, who are listening on their commute, who are listening as they're working out, who are listening, um, whenever, you know, they're multitasking and listening. And what I really wanted to thank is not only those people who are listening, but I want to thank the employees here mm. in this building who are stopping me in the hallway, who are coming up and are providing that real-time feedback and saying, hey, I listen to this show, I like this, or I like this. And what I'm finding is that they're going through a discovery process through the thought leaders that we're bringing to the show, as well as our own employees. You know, So it's kind of this discovery process, not only for me, but for all the employees. So I wanted to thank All the people are listening. I want to thank all our employees who are listening. And then finally, I want to thank you, Ronnie. Uh. Oh, Yeah, you know, it's been, I couldn't have done this without you, and I've really enjoyed this whole process. And so, you know, as we look towards 2015, I'm hoping that we can get out on the road like we did when we were in New York. That was fun. And I'm hoping that um, we can interview, obviously, not only just the people in this building, but some of our remote employees, the people that are working in our New York office, the people who are working in Canada, Europe, and, and beyond. So hopefully, we'll be able to sit down with them.
1: Well, Thank you, Victor. I mean, this wouldn't have happened without you, um, and I, I think it's been awesome. As as you said, it's sort of we're starting to cultivate a little community, I think. Um, and it's you know, it's great having our employees on. It's great talking to thought leaders in the space, and I'm I'm looking forward to what we can do in 2015.
0: Yeah. So with that, let's uh, let's get started here with our interview with Clara. So, um, welcome, Clara.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me, and great to be here with all of you right around holiday season.
0: Well, we're excited to have you, just from the, for the very fact that we started in the introduction, we talked about how we've been doing this Employee Spotlight series, and kind of building up to this show, really, to talk to you, to understand the origins and the background of the story. We have just celebrated our fifth birthday as a company, or a fifth anniversary. Right. What is it, an anniversary, or is it a birthday? Oh. Birthday
1: sounds more fun. <laughs> it does sound more fun, right? It does
0: sound more fun. So, all right, we celebrated a five—you know—our fifth birthday. So we're uh, kicking and screaming here, you know, as a fit five-year-old company, but we're growing and such. And really wanted to spend some time with you to learn about the background since you've been there from the very beginning. And then let's reflect on the last five years. So, yeah, let's do it. So, share with us how did all this get started? And and even before that, where were you before that that brought you to create Hearsay Social?
2: Gosh, I mean. Going really far back, I'm from Chicago, and I remember being a junior in high school and reading about the first dot-com boom and just being so excited that you know anyone could come out here with an idea and with hard work, with luck. You could build you could literally build something from scratch and, and change the world. And so I came out, came out west, went to Stanford, met Steve my co-founder our CTO now i met him the first week of freshman year in advanced intro to computer programming and over the course of the next 4 years in college we became great friends we partnered together in a number of the programming classes and i think just being on stanford campus you can't help but talk about startups and entrepreneurship and we would often we would often daydream and and talk about what if we could start a company together? Mm -hmm. And so a decade later, you know, after we parted ways, Mm -hmm. we worked at at Microsoft, at Salesforce.com, at Google. A decade later, we had a chance to come back together and and do it. And that was five years ago.
0: Wow. And could you have imagined when you first met Steve that at some point it would become something quite like this?
2: No, of course not. (laughs) I think, I mean, when you're 18, you have no idea what, what a company is really made of. And and even when we started this journey 5 years ago we just wanted to build a technology that that we could get a few customers using and paying for we never imagined you know close to 200 employees 15 countries i mean this is really amazing
0: yeah it is I was going to say, as far as early first impressions for me, and we've talked about this, and we've actually talked to a lot of the people who have been part of this Employee Spotlight series about their impressions and what, what led them, what motivated them to join Hearsay Social. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I found really impressive, was the fact that here in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, you get a sense that a lot of companies, there's there's usually two sides of the house, right? There's the engineering kind of technical core, and then there's the sales and marketing core, if you will. What was it that was different about Hearsay Social? Uh, from your perspective and I, you know because from my perspective it wasn't like any other company in this valley.
2: Thanks for asking that and pointing that out because it's something that Steve and I really wanted to to build into the company because we had worked at both Steve and I worked at Microsoft, which is a very engineering and product driven company and, and so is Google and then I, I worked at salesforce.com, which is a very sales driven company and you you actually don't want it to be, too far one way or another because you know when engineers run the show oftentimes you're at risk of not really listening to the customer or not being as strong as you could be on the go-to-market side. Conversely if you're all about selling, selling, selling all the time, you you lose sight of of innovation and, and the core technology engine that keeps you differentiated. And so we wanted to create a, a system of checks and balances and to have a place where we could attract not only the best engineers and product people, but also the best salespeople and marketers.
1: Yeah, it's cool that, um, it's not that both houses are strong, but they're integrated together. So it's, you'll regularly see salespeople talking to product people about what they're hearing in the field, what people, what customers need. And likewise, you see engineers going out to sales meetings actually and and showing off the product. So that was baked in from the beginning. That was something you guys had in mind.
2: Yeah, it's something we had in mind. It's always easier said than done. And I think more broadly, if you look at what social media has done to organizations, it's also encouraging this cohesiveness because when you're on Twitter, sometimes you're using it for marketing purposes. Sometimes there's a customer complaint and all of a sudden it's customer service mm-hmm. and your product team that needs to step in. Mm-hmm. From the customer's point of view, it needs to be integrated. It's They, they don't care whether it's this department or that department or company politics or whatnot, they want to deal with a single entity that solves their pain point.
0: Right. And it's part it plays into the culture because I was saying as far as my observations was the fact that it, it was like a left brain, right brain, but it was all one brain, you know, from the standpoint and that that reflects in how when we eat lunch, I mean I'm making a, a, a very, you know, conscious decision. I want to sit with someone I don't know. I want to get to know the engineers. I want them to understand the work that I do and the contributions I'm making but I also wanna understand the contributions that they're making, and so it's almost this collective, we're all in this together, working very hard, really to provide a product and a service for our clients that they like, so it's been a, a great experience. So tell us about the early days, okay? Where did it, where did it all get started, and then let's talk about the evolution in the last five years and the progression that you've seen, and obviously being involved in it with Steve, how did all that come about?
2: Yeah, so it was 2007, I was still working at salesforce.com at the time, in my spare time, I built a Facebook app just for fun. Didn't even tell anybody about it. And it ended up going viral because of the viral nature of these social media sites. And then Forrester Research broke the news. They, wrote a, they, they published a post on their blog saying that I had kickstarted the social business movement. I didn't even know what that was, but apparently <laughs> it was a big deal. So a few weeks later... I was all over all the tech news outlets. I received a few calls from different publishing companies saying, hey, we, we heard you built the first business app on Facebook. How would you like to write the first business book about Facebook? And so 2007, and it seemed like you know as, as good a time as any, and it seemed like an, an, an opportunity of a lifetime to be able to, to write a book. I never thought I would have an opportunity to write a book. So I took it on and spent 2008 researching and writing the book. I interviewed hundreds of people, many of whom were the original users of, of the app that i had created. It's called Face Force. And the book came out in March 2009, got featured in the New York Times, became a bestseller, translated into 13 languages. And that's when I figured out that the social business movement was actually legitimate. And that, that this had legs. And so at that point, I phoned Steve up. He was still working at Microsoft. And I said, Steve, remember how in college we used to talk about starting a company together? And he said, yes. And I said, I think our time is now. And so within a few months, we had both given notice. We he, Steve was living in Seattle at the time. So we moved back to San Francisco. And... He, we just we started working out of my living room out of his living room and eventually you know almost a year later we raised our first round of venture financing and we had our first you know quote unquote real office which was a conference room in the basement of Sequoia Capital wow <laughs> you
1: know
0: there's,
1: there's a photo of of that office that that we love sharing <laughs>
0: there is you know and I, I don't think I've ever shared with you that my first introduction to you was through the book was the fact that I purchased the book when it came out because I was, you know, using Facebook and, and LinkedIn, mostly Facebook and Twitter for not-for-profit organizations. And when I read the Facebook era, I was just like, I need to understand this better. And there really was no textbook. There was nothing in print. I mean, you could go to a lot of blogs and things like that. But there was nothing cohesive. And so that was my first exposure. So who would have ever thought then, in reading that book, that I'd actually be working here? So Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. And it's in a number of languages now, right? Yeah,
2: 13. Wow.
0: We're looking at it right now. Right up on the wall. Here, and give it to me. I'll read it for everybody. If they haven't read it, I'll go ahead and You're start. Read the it. Whole thing? This is gonna be a book on yeah, tape this is now. Be, this <laughs> take a long time. No, okay, no, we'll say that for another show. Okay, so you and Steve are in the basement of Sequoia Capital. So how do you go from the basement of Sequoia Capital to a global presence with offices not only across the United States,
2: but in Canada, Europe, and beyond? One customer and one employee at a time. You know, we always had this vision of changing sales. You know, we saw all these efficiencies being driven by digital and and by technology in the marketing arena, in customer service, in back office. But when we looked at sales and salespeople, we felt that a lot of how they spent their time was still not as efficient as it could be and was quickly losing relevance with today's increasingly digital consumer. And so we started Hearsay to help salespeople do two things on social media, hear and say. The hear part of Hearsay is helping salespeople listen to what their customers and prospects are sharing, and then based on what they hear, we wanted to be able to suggest the right thing to say to the right person at the right time. So it was a simple vision, but we we literally, we started with our first customer who was an Allstate insurance agent, Jimmy Smart based in southern, uh, southern, southern Georgia, rather, and Jimmy signed up for our service, and every month he would write us a check on it from his personal checkbook for $50. And we, when we received that every month, we were so proud. It was our first revenue. We would walk it to the bank and deposit it, and it gave us a sense of obligation to do right by Jimmy and make sure that we were creating a product, that was not only delightful and easy to use, but actually providing at least $50 worth of value every month for him. And we grew from there. You know, we grew, eventually we we got all of all state. And at the time we were still horizontally focused. So we signed on a number of realtors. We had multi-level marketing sales reps using our service. We had car sales salesmen, all kinds of people who whom we felt accountable to to delivering a great service and enabling them on social media.
1: It's interesting that that you mentioned how how we were uh, serving a few different areas at one point, but but today we're very firmly focused on financial services. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that evolution?
2: Absolutely. As any startup, the greatest challenge isn't figuring out what to do, it's figuring out what not to do. If you were trying to be everything to everyone, that would be very difficult to justify building. But if you're focused on financial services and you know that that's your core audience, it becomes, it's a no-brainer. Of course you're going to build a really robust governance and regulatory compliance set of features.
1: That's right, and we we had some of that from the beginning, but by focusing, we were able to hone in and, and create an even more robust compliance tool. And so that's why... Customers have stuck with us, and we've acquired new ones.
2: That's right. And if you look at any successful company out there, companies much, much bigger than ours, they all started somewhere. You have to focus on your initial audience, know the audience really well, service them really well, and then over time you earn the right to expand your scope. But, but that, I think that's a, the, the struggle that most startups have is they don't know when and how to focus. And we're really lucky early on because of our board, because of our advisors, because of our own employees and our own customers that we said, hey, we have to take a step back and let's really make sure that we we put all of our eggs in one basket and do that really well before we expand.
1: I want to maybe talk about employees a little bit because you mentioned, you said one customer at a time, um, but you also said one employee at a time is how is how we grew and scaled the company. Um, I think when I joined a little over three years ago, I was around the 40th employee. Now we're quadrupled that, I think. Um, sort of, what has what that process been like for you? I, I know that uh, applicants still talk to either Clara or Steve um, in the interview process. So just what are you looking for and, and how, how has that been um, Just a challenge through the years?
2: We are, we are as good as our people are. And I think our people are pretty darn good. But it, it takes time and we've learned a lot over the years in terms of what kinds of people will succeed here. I think early on in any company you struggle to, to get anyone to want to join you when you're pre revenue and you know, you really don't have a track record. And as you build it up it becomes easier and easier on the one hand, but it gets harder and harder because there's there's just there are more people and more layers and, and you can't spend as much time with each candidate as you would otherwise. Mm-hmm you know when you're five people or 10 people every single employee interviews every single that's candidate right, that's right. you can't do that at at our size so i would say you know what i look for because we still do founder interviews at our size it's really time consuming but i think it's it's important i look for people who come in sharing our values you know number 1 focus on long term customer success how are they actually when when it when it counts when it when it's costly when it hurts what have they demonstrated that they're willing to go the extra mile for the customer? Second set of values, win together, lose together. Are they collaborative? Do they support their peers versus wanting to one-up their peers in an environment, and both on their team as well as cross-functionally? And then the third one, our favorite, GSD. Mm-hmm. You know, Get stuff done, so to speak. Are they more than just talk and more than just ideas? Do they actually execute? Are they, you know, are they the kind of person who rolls up their sleeves and is willing to do whatever it takes to help the company move forward, even if it isn't exactly in their job description? And I think by and large, our company, everyone has those those qualities. And I, I know when I met Victor and, and first tried to recruit him, he was actually working at one of our competitors.
1: He's turning uh, red.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like Victor is like he espouses Hearsay's value. So he, you, you've got to come here. So I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> it did
0: work out. You're
1: he was turning hearsay else. red. He was um, turning uh, hearsay, hearsay red. There you go. <laughs> he
0: was turning hearsay red. But you know what was interesting for me, it was, this is exactly the kind of environment I was looking for. And uh, I was really just blown away. I mean, when I first joined in, uh, and being part of Gary's team and meeting Ronnie and meeting everybody and just this, I remember you came to me the first week he said, how's it going? You know, just wanted to check in, as I'm sure you do with all the employees, just to see how we're, and we hadn't seen each other, and I'd been here a whole week. And, um, all right. And I remember you asked the question, and the honest answer was, I don't feel like I joined a company. I I feel like I joined a family. And it was a week one. And it was just this feeling of being embraced, you know, because I had a few reservations having come from a competitor. Will people like me? Will it take me a longer uphill battle to feel comfortable? but immediately made, was made to feel at home and collaborate not only with the people in, in marketing, but sales and customer success, business development, engineering. So, you know, I love what I do because it gives me so much exposure to so many different areas of the company. So let's talk about your day-to-day because I see you're in, out, you're traveling, you're on front of cameras, you're out talk, speaking in <laughs> conferences. So tell us what is it about your day-to-day, or maybe for in your case, it'd be like week-to-week and then uh, what do you enjoy most about what you do?
2: It's not that glamorous.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> is. It is. <laughs> there, are, there are some <laughs> glam moments. But I, say, I think my job is really to do three things. One is it's to set the strategy and direction of the company and to make sure that I continually evaluate that on an annual quarterly basis as our company changes, as the market around us changes two is make sure we have all the right people and all the right places in the company to make that happen so I think we have a really strong executive team now and, and we we just hired our first few people in Asia and then the third aspect of my my job is is thought leadership and getting out on the road and whether it's speaking at conferences or meeting with customer executives listening to what's on their minds and evangelizing to them what our vision is and, and really having a two-way dialogue to make sure that where hearsay is is pointed at direction-wise is the right place.
0: And, and when you're doing that and you go out and you meet with executives or thought leaders in the space, do you find that they, they understand exactly what we're doing as far as the value that we're adding to this industry?
2: Yes and no. I think at a high level, almost every company we meet with, and maybe this is why they meet with us in the first place, they understand that they come from an industry that needs to be modernized. And they need, it's their job to digitize their firm. So they view us as being a partner in doing that. But oftentimes, they, don't, they might not know the specifics of how we do it. And so I go, I, I go with our sales team, our customer success team, to explain to them, this is, this is exactly how we help you digitize your firm. Starting with social media, but not limited to social media. And then this is what we need from you to make it successful. Because it's not just as simple as buying software and and just throwing it over to the customer. There's actually a lot of work that's required, as as we see from the best program implementations, people actually taking the vision and operationalizing it through a series of of steps. Right,
0: and I'm glad you, you said the word partnership because it sounds to me like the recipe that started with customer one out in South Georgia hasn't changed because of the emphasis and the investment we make in our customer success team you know, insofar as ensuring that, as you said, your job, I think is everyone's job here is to make our customers more successful. So it's partnering with them to do that for them and so that they see the value in the product they see the value what it, what, it, what our value you know they see the value of what we're creating here
2: yeah, it's it's a shared mission that we have with our partners, with our customers.
0: So we've partnered now with a number of customers across the entire the financial services and insurance, banking, wealth management, and asset management in the mortgage industry. So I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, what is what has been some of the biggest changes you've seen in this industry? And I know it's kind of a broad base, but changes you've seen in the industry to the point of where we are now so that we can get to the conversation where you think it's headed.
2: The industry is going through major changes. Technology is a big part of that in terms of of both the underlying infrastructure of the industry as well as the way the technology influences consumer behavior. You know, consumers now, you know, when you by the time that they're willing to talk to one of your agents or advisors, they're already 57% of the way through their buyer's journey because they've already googled you, they've already read about you online, they've already checked you out on Twitter and asked their friends whether you're a reliable firm and advisor to work with. So meeting the consumer where they are, which is online, is has become it's gone from optional to mandatory. And then at the same time consumers now expect they expect highly personalized and highly personable experiences. They expect to be able to communicate with your company exactly when where and how is most convenient for them, increasingly through social and, and mobile. So I think there's, there have been a lot of changes and firms are, they, they understand this at the, at the highest levels and also those who are on the field understand this. But I think we still have a ways to go in terms of operationalizing and making sure that every agent, every sales manager, everyone on the marketing team is thinking social and digital and mobile as a part of all of their other initiatives.
1: Yeah, it was interesting just for me seeing how much the conversation has changed at some of these conferences that we visit. Um, I mean, a few years ago, if you went to a SIFMA conference, the question was, should I be on social media? Um, and and if I do, how do I do it? Now, I, th- I think at SIFMA Social a, a month or two ago, um, it was really... If you're not there, you're late because what we're talking about right now and everyone at the table right now is talking about is we're there. And how do we make it more efficient? How do we um, evangelize across the organization? Like you said, so it's we really have come a long way.
0: Well, and from a practitioner standpoint, I mean, we're starting to see even senior leadership usage of social media increase. Uh, I had the good fortune of sitting down with uh, Tosh Elwin from Raymond James to talk to him. And he's a practitioner. He uses Twitter. And it's really interesting how the embracing at that C level or senior level makes a big difference in the adoption that follows within an organization because they're able to see up the light, you know the chain of command. Hey, if my president, if my CEO is using social media, what's to stop me? Mm-hmm. What's my excuse? This is one, and this is my own personal thing. When the Pope got on Twitter, I thought no one. That's when you know it's it, real. Yeah, <laughs> it's real. If the Pope is tweeting, then you know there's no excuse for. For, there's no real excuse for anybody else avoiding it at this point.
2: Well, and it's like any new technology. I remember, you know, when typewriters first came out, people, first, no one used it. Then offices bought it, but then you had your secretary do it. And then pretty soon, it was that wasn't enough. Everyone has to type. You, know, you used yeah. to have someone else pipe the call for you. Now you, you call your own numbers. The same is true with social media. We went from no one using it to having a select group of people within a company using it to now everyone from the CEO down needs to be a digital native and needs to feel comfortable on social and on mobile. So recognizing
0: that we're starting a level set and that's becoming the new norm and the bar keeps raising, which is, I think, part of what we end up doing and our involvement with the groups and associations that we support being tapped in, if you will, to the FINRA organization and the SEC and the other regulatory bodies, just to understand what's happening on that front. Where do you see this going? Because we can look back at the past five years and say this has really been an evolution. You know, I used to say it's, it's a revolution at an evolutionary pace when mm-hmm. it comes to social media and financial services. But I'm really encouraged and optimistic about the next couple of years, and I'm kind of curious where you see things going.
2: Yeah, I would say I would say two things. One is that we will increasingly see social media more integrated across other digital channels. So it's not social in isolation, web in isolation, email in isolation, mobile in isolation, but rather you're starting to see more cohesiveness because that's what the customer wants and expects. And then secondly is to make all of this work, social media or digital, these programs can't just be off on the side. They have to be deeply and fully integrated with standard operating procedure. So how somebody sells how somebody gets onboarded as a new sales rep, how someone gets coached by their sales manager. And as part of that process, you know, oftentimes the, the hardest part is organizations have to decide what they're not going to do so that they can clear the capacity, the mental capacity and also the time to focus on these new mediums. And it could be things like focusing less on yellow pages or focusing less on cold calling and less on, traditional seminars and shifting more of the budget, more of the time, to these new mediums that are more relevant to today's consumer.
1: So really it's about becoming more sophisticated in how we approach it. Um, instead of being like a silo at your organization, it's horizontal running across all the, all the things that you're doing, especially when you're interacting with customers.
2: Yeah, it becomes the fabric of how you do business and in the, in the, the fabric of an organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about the digital native, and it's become almost uh, ingrained, if you will, if you look at the Generation Y and the millennial generation, I think it's the same thing. But beyond that, it is part of who they are. I mean, we often talk about when it comes to social, uh, I use the, the movie The Internship as the perfect example because I fall more in the Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson character, right? And then you've got you know the young guys in the, in the internship program that they're just living and breathing. This is who they are. And so it will, it's never been lost on me, and I've shared this with a number of groups when I've gone out to speak, in saying that for those who are probably in Generation Y and younger, they don't look at being online as a destination. It's where they live, right? And I still, I mean, in my generation, Generation X still looks at it as a place to go, as a destination. I'm going to go online, and these people live there. And so I think that as we move forward, you talk about the digital natives, and as these organizations start embracing social and digital as part of their everyday as part of the business process it's a it's a it becomes less of something that's new and it's just who you are
2: well that's right and if you look at who's getting promoted into these chief marketing officer head of sales positions who's getting named CEO who's being asked to join boards of directors of very large non-tech companies all of these people are digital natives increasingly they are. They have technology experience, they have experience rolling out social projects, mobile projects, and in their personal lives, they're online all the time. And so I think that's the way the world is going and it's, it's really gone from a nice to have to a must have.
0: So here we are just a few days away from the new year and so looking towards 2015, do you have any final thoughts to share with our customers, our employees, our partners and friends?
2: I just want to say thank you. I mean, what a year it has been. Hearsay, we've gone from 100 employees to basically 180 employees in one short year. We now have an office in Asia. It's it's really incredible, and we couldn't have done it without without you. So our employees, our customers. I know 2015 is going to be even bigger and better than before, and I just I want to wish everyone a happy new year and uh, just say how much I'm looking forward to working with you in the new year.
0: Thanks, Clara. Yeah, thank you, Clara. And on behalf of uh, myself, I just wanted to say Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you for listening, as we said at the beginning of the show. And uh, Ronnie, thank Happy New Year to you. Happy New
1: Year to both of you. It's, yeah. been a, it's
0: been fun. Yeah. Well, once again, Hearsay Social on the Air, episode 20 with Clara. I'm Victor Gaxiola. I'm Ronnie Kerr. And you're... Clara Happy New Year, everyone.